Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. So we're going to continue our, our journey this week in Romans. I say continue, but you know, we started at the end and then we skipped to the beginning last week and now we're going to skip to the middle uh, just because it makes sense that way or not at all, uh, but it sounds right if it did make sense that way. I was super hesitant. I'm going to tell you this every week. I was super hesitant to take Romans uh, because Romans has been used in a lot of, shall we say, abusive ways. It's been used in malicious ways. It's been, uh, Paul in general has been used in ways that has limited the church's potential and the church's potential as community. And so I was hesitant to dig into it at all. Um, but one of the pieces about Romans, and I think if we were to dig into any of Paul's letters, we actually begin to find this. One of the things about Romans is that it's actually intended to broaden and not limit. But the church has traditionally used it to limit and to, uh, to isolate, to control. And Paul actually intended completely the opposite. And so we've been, we've been looking at different pieces. So we, we began starting a conversation with, well, who are, who are the Ro- like, what does the Roman church look like? And where do they come from? And, and what's going on? For many, many years, Romans was specifically used and read and, and worked with. All of the scholarship really led us to a conversation about about whether there is grace through works or grace through faith. And what happens in that process is that we treat Romans as if Paul was writing a universal letter to all churches of all times. And we did this for a long time. And at one point in the 70s, somebody started thinking, the 1970s, somebody started thinking, well, actually, it kind of looks like there are some things going on historically that Romans is addressing, and maybe this is actually written to the church in Rome. And surprise to find out uh, that that makes a whole lot more sense. And when we treat it that way, uh, we get a whole lot more value and depth out of this letter. So we started there with who is the, the, the church in Rome, churches in Rome. So we, we looked at chapter 16. He writes to half a dozen churches, names, calls them by name and says to this church and to this people and to this church. And then, uh, and then we backed up and we looked a little bit about cultural things that's going on. What is, what is happening in the Roman Empire? And finally, what is Paul actually writing for? So if he's writing to a specific church, why is he writing to that church? And I just told you everything we talked about, but didn't tell you what any of that was. So just real briefly, Paul writes to the church to say, he doesn't know them, by the way. He knows a few of them, but he's never been to Rome. So when he writes to the Corinthians, which we read earlier, he's able to say, sort of, you know me, 
and you know who I am, and you know my character, and you know my faith, and he's able to, to give them directives to say, look, this is, this is how you need to behave. This is how you need to act. This is what faith looks like. When he writes to Rome, he doesn't know them personally, for the most part. He knows a few of them. He doesn't know them personally. And so he has to sort of back up and talk a bit more broadly. He addresses some things going on in the, in the churches in Rome. But more specifically, he's writing to get support so that he can go to Rome and then so that he can go and uh, begin evangelizing. That's a dirty word here, but evangelizing in uh, Spain. And so the, the purpose is part to garner missional support. So when we write fundraising letters, we try to make a connection. We try to make sure they know that we're in good faith and that we're doing and that this is needed, that we have a purpose in going and doing this, this work. Paul does all of that throughout this letter. And then lastly, when we looked at this church or these churches, there's some really interesting things going on. Often the reference is to the strong. Paul references the strong or the weak. And then he talks about those who are strong and those who are weak. What is happening here? Churches in Rome, which were started as all of the churches, as Jewish followers of Jesus, but the emperor or or Caesar kicked out Jewish Christians from the city entirely, removed them, sent them on their way because of their, uh, the report we have is because of uprising on the account of Christus, which we assume is on the account of Jesus. So Jewish Christians are exiled from the city and sit different places. Up until that point, you would assume, or we can assume, that Jewish Christians were the one that were leading churches. And then when they leave, it becomes Gentile or Greek Christians that take charge and take ownership. And so when uh, that exile is lifted, people come home, and the church has changed, and expectations have changed, and traditions have changed. And so there's this, uh, there's this dynamic, there's this tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile or Greek Christians in this community. And they're in different churches, they're in different ethnic communities, they're in different status, social status, both in terms of their power, but also in terms of their economics. All of this is happening in Rome that Paul is writing to. And it makes a difference when we read the letter and when we pull different things out. So we're going to look at today Romans chapter 12 with some of that in mind because the way our understanding of the community shapes every single thing that we learn about and everything, everything that we read. So he writes, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your, my text reads spiritual, but we're going to read it differently, which is your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So this is the launch into Paul's like fourth major point in this letter. But we're going, we're working a little bit backwards because when we read chapters one through eight and and following, but primarily one through eight, if we don't know what the purpose is, we tend to get off track. And here Paul is giving us a bit of the purpose of the full letter. I appealed to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to do a couple of things. Typically, Paul would rest an argument on either the law or on a spiritual knowledge. In Romans, uniquely in Romans, he rests this argument on the mercies of God. He says, follow what's coming because God is merciful. God is gracious. God is good. And because of that, we respond with our sacrifice. So we talked a little bit about the empire last week. We can't think about sacrifice without thinking about uh, the, the Jewish tradition that comes before and the, and the sacrifice for atonement. But Paul sets up something a little bit different here. A sacrifice, as you might, accept, as you might expect, it would normally require the end of a life, right? So we make a sacrifice and we like cut the animal in half and then we lay it out and then we present it to God. That's the end of that story, right? In the Roman world, what would have been heard in terms of sacrifice, often aside from sacrifices to the gods, would have been a sacrifice to Caesar through your giving of your life in military combat. So it's also a complete sacrifice to the end. But Paul does something a little bit differently here. And we, we lose this by, by often our, our text conflates these two words as living sacrifice. But he's setting up a different dynamic. He's setting up a sacrifice that is living, that is the embodiment of a response to God, and that is holy, and that is acceptable. And we don't necessarily recommend those th- rec- recognize those three terms, but Paul is identifying different things that are important to different communities in Rome. Those, those three words would have meant something different to different people. They don't normally go together. And they're not clarifying one another. It's like he's taken uh, three ideas and set them side by side. If you see a, a sacrifice that is living, you experience this statement one way. If you see it as holy, you would connect to your Jewish background and, the, and be holy because I am holy and the references to God is holy. And acceptable is just that, sufficient satisfactory, you've done the, the proper amount, the right job. But that's a, that's a philosophical term to the Greco-Roman world. 
And so he's pulling these different ideas so that he can pull in different audiences as he walks through. Remember, he's writing to different people within Rome and trying, attempting to pull them together. The next piece that's interesting about this story is that he's writing to a collective group. This is the other thing we wrecked when we began the path down Romans as a the Roman road to salvation is that we individualized everything. And we talk about this here every so often because it's an important thing to remember. When the letter is written, it's written to a community. But when we read it, we read it as an individual. So we might get away with that in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. Okay, collectively, but I appeal to each of you, maybe, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So all of this is playing right into our theology, right? Right into our traditional theology. Uh, I'm supposed to make uh, a decision. I've been taught that I have to follow these steps and I have to think through it in this way. And then I become transformed because I've done all of that work in my head. We might like put heart there to soften it, but we really mean I've made a, a mental decision to do this, right? But he's going to follow this with, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, plural, so that you, plural, may discern what is the will of God. Paul is writing about collective, communal worship and working out of the body. So Jim read from, from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and here we are. He's back at it again, trying to get us to understand that that all of our different places and parts and peoples needs to work together to collectively work out so that we may be transformed as a community, so that we may be renewed in our minds as a community, so that we as a community may discern the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. And there are those three different words again, parallel to the ones before, all of which bring in a different aspect of people in this Roman community. You see, Paul's driving point throughout Romans is that all of these groups that are beginning to divide and beginning to to create division amongst the body have to figure out how to let things go. You see, the Gentile Christians believed that they were in privilege because they had higher social status, they had higher economic status, they had control over the churches during the time period that the Jewish Christians were gone. But the Jewish Christians don't ever let go of their privilege of being the chosen community that God has called from since the beginning of time as they tell their story, right? They're the ones that were given the law. They are the ones that get to disseminate the law. And they are also claiming their privilege. And Paul is going to write and say, look, everything that you've been thinking about your community is off because you're trying to prop up yourself over the other. 
So he continues, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. One good translation for this is not to be super-minded. Right? I think it's a fun word. Not to be super-minded, but to be sober-minded. In the Roman, Greco-Roman world, it's all about honor. To gain your honor, you present yourself as honorable in hopes that others will treat you that way. And then you can bestow gifts upon them as your honor gives you and allows you to do. But in a world that's overturned and that sees, that sees a different ethic and a different, an alternative to reality, Paul says it's not about propping yourself up. It's about seeing yourself within the community of God and allowing that to inform the way you live and breathe and work and do life together. But think sober-minded, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leading. But remember, he launched this by talking and by addressing the collective that we're going to do together. And immediately begins talking about the body of Christ. And somehow we seem to miss that the body of Christ with all of us working in our different places and functions and and abilities, doesn't relate back to verses 1 and 2? That's my tangent. Sorry. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So in a system about all about honor and shame... In a division, a divided church that is claiming power and privilege over each other, he writes, let love guide you, outdo one another in showing honor, rejoice in hope and be patient in suffering and persevere in prayer, extend hospitality to the strangers. Maybe that's like a literal, like, You see someone in need and you help them. But given the context, he's probably talking about these divisions within churches and extending hospitality to those that we refer to as strangers. And then he's going to get really crazy. And I I don't know how to place this except to go back to that conversation about empire. And I know we did that last week. But everything that Paul does in this letter is leading us to an ethic that is wholly other, an alternative reality in which God is in charge and in which we sacrifice ourselves for the other. He writes, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another and do not be haughty, haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
everything that is expected in this society, he's saying, hold back. In this world, in the Roman world, their greatest claim to fame is the peace that they live with. Pax Romana, yeah? The peace that they live with through military might. Everything comes back to that. Caesar, over time and time again, is able to come back and say, look at what I've given to you. But Paul references a persecution that comes with peace in the world. To have peace in the Roman world, you have to persecute and oppress through violence and through military might. In this case, it's the Jewish Christians. And he says, bless those who persecute you. Instead of propping ourselves up, instead of following suit and finding control over the, ro- over the world through power and through might and through violence, your job is to sacrifice, to live in harmony, to bless those who don't deserve it. And all of it is because God is merciful to those, us, who don't deserve it. All of it comes back to that. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now it's going to get a little interesting here. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Thanks, uh, Amanda, wherever you're at, for uh, bringing in some Old Testament theology this morning on uh, a violent God. (laughs) But here's what's interesting here, okay? Regardless of what you do with the theology of who God is in this moment, Paul's statement is, you're not to take part in it. It's not your job. It's up to God, and it's not to be your job. And if we go back to Romans 1, which we're going to do later, but if we go back to Romans 1, the way that wrath works out, leave room for the wrath of God, is through your own personal process. We make decisions that create chaos in our lives. So even within Paul's own ethic here, he's going to write, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But it's not a violent repayment. It's not a violent revenge. Just a little tidbit there. But regardless, it's not yours to do. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to judge anyone else because it's not your job. Uh, In fact, you need to let it go because we have to live together and do faith together and do life together and is not your job. So just let it go. And it eats away at you when you don't. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Live in harmony with one another and associate with the lowly. Never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will, re- will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to, to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. 
One last thought, and let's talk about this for a second. This is from Proverbs 25. He's quoting. He says, If your enemies are hungry, you give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. For you will heap coals of fire on their heads. But he stops short of quoting the entire passage. We talk about this from time to time. For one part of this, we see the fullness of Proverbs 25 is all about is all about not putting yourself above another. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. But in the Proverbs ethic, Proverbs it always comes back to because then when you get pulled up, it's all the more glorious. When you feed, feed your enemy or, or give them a drink when they're thirsty and you heap coals on their head, the Lord will reward you. That's the next line. But Paul's not interested in that. Paul's interested in this alternative ethic that turns the the Roman Empire on its head, that instead of seeking out your own glory, you only serve and care for one another. He cuts Proverbs off mid-sentence so that we don't get caught up in the reward that comes for ourselves, Because that's the ethic of the proverb. But that's not what Paul is touting. Paul is saying, because God has given us so much, because God's mercy is on even the one that doesn't deserve it, then we follow suit by caring for one another, by lifting up our enemy even when they don't deserve it, by loving one another in the midst of arguments and pain and suffering, and by blessing those who persecute us. Everything in this is antithetical to the way the world was supposed to function. Everything. And it hasn't changed that much. We sometimes have a hard time translating this to our current day. But it hasn't really changed that much because we're still doing all of these same activities. How many denominations do we have? Tens of thousands. How do we gain authority over others and make sure our political views are seen as right and proper? We tout our accomplishments or our education or our experience to claim our privilege over another. How do we handle things when when we are wronged? We create a criminal justice system that is completely and entirely about revenge. That's the way we function. It's what we know. It's how we live. But Paul is offering us a different vision for the way the world functions, excuse me, can function. A world in which God is in charge, a world in which we seek out to care for one another and to find community amongst us in all of our differences, in, in all of our uh, expertise or specialties or, uh, or, or experiences that we're able to bring to the table, that's what makes Paul's story so great because it's a lived embodiment of what the church is supposed to look like. And yes, it takes individuals transforming to do that. But Paul's talking about the community. What happens when a community lives differently? What happens when a community is willing to be transformed by the renewing of your minds?
and seeking out the will of a God who is merciful even when it's undeserved. It leads us to an entirely different ethic and way of life. Paul begins chapter 1 this way. I am not ashamed of the power, excuse me, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. A gospel that's about a king who is put to death. It is the power of God for salvation, not of Caesar, but of God. Salvation not delivered by Caesar, but by God, to everyone who has faith, the Jew and also the Greek. For in the righteousness of God, the mercies of God is revealed through faith, for faith, mutually encouraging one another. That's the entire letter is driving us to find community and make it happen. I was reading a book a few months ago. It's been a while. The author was talking about our consumer approach to church, which I have mixed feelings about because because I do think it's healthy to find a church that's good for you. And it can be incredibly damaging to find a church that is not good for you. But we tend to, over the last 20 years, think about church in a very consumer kind of way. We have the best worship team. Or we have uh, the best light show on display. Or we have the best children's ministry. We think about, and then, and then we tell people, Come to Open Door because we've got this amazing children's program where, where your kid is get, gets individualized attention and is, and is treated inclusively like a member of, just like a member of, of the community so that, that their church is your church and your church is their church. Which is all true. But when somebody tells them about a bigger budget or a better children's ministry, guess what? We've trained them to be here because of the children's ministry is so great. And now there's a children's ministry across town that's so great. And now they've left because we trained them to think about church in a very consumer way. The world hasn't changed that much from Paul's letter. And this guy was writing, he said, someone came to our church and we had been thinking through like what it means to not be a consumer-driven church. And, uh, and he said... He sits down with him and he has this conversation. He says, and, and he was thinking about leaving his church because of a change in something that happened. I like these people that do this because I am not one of them. But he said, go back to your church because in your community as a body, you find the process of God working in the world. We tend to think about church as this thing that we do. But Paul's writing to say church isn't what you do. It's who you are. And figuring out how to get work past differences and things that you don't like about one another or theology things that, that don't make sense to you is part of being the body of Christ. So if you're new, don't go back to your old church. Um, if, uh, 
if you've been here a long time, then, then, uh, you know, figure out how to work together because we have to stay. Sorry. <laughs> Paul's whole point is that, is that we have to figure this out together and that we have to let some things go because we hold things so tightly. And we, we use this metaphor from time to time, holding the, the core tight and, and everything else loose in the hands. But we don't know how to do that. And sometimes we have core differences. And Paul is able to say to the church in Rome, those core differences that you have, you need to let them go so that you can be the body. So that you can do community. So that you can live in a world that, that is not envisioned by consumerism or by the empire or by political prowess or by the social status of the membership, but through your community showing the love of God. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by Attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.